Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nucleus Investment Insights. This week we complete our final show on our contrarian view that both the rebound in asset and material prices and the enormity of financial support pumped into economies is now going to spill into the potential for higher levels of inflation. If you've only just tuned in, feel free to check out our two previous shows on the topic where we covered issues that caused inflation in the 1970s and how the rules have changed since then. We had a look at technology being inherently deflationary, net result, a financial system over-engineered to prevent inflation. We also looked at the impact of China on commodity prices. As a behemoth in demand for global commodities, it makes a lot of sense to consider China's fortunes going forward when forecasting inflation. Well worth a look if you haven't already. Last week, we looked at the inventory supercycle. First, we looked at how an inventory cycle disproportionately affects manufacturers both upwards and downwards, and we're in the up cycle now. In addition to the usual cycle effects, retail demand has been juiced by a mix of stimulus checks, lack of services, and pent-up savings. Consumers have been spending on goods because they could not spend on services. Manufacturing supply has been limited by COVID, the Suez Canal blockage, and changing demand patterns. But inventory cycles are, sh are short. The price signals of today are building the excess capacity of tomorrow. The signs are, are good for economic growth, but are not indicative of rampant inflation. So now's the time to put all of these drivers into practical portfolio action. Today, we're going to run through several scenarios and strategies uh, we're employing to both protect portfolios whilst taking advantage of the opportunities found in this contrarian view. Joining us today on the, for the last of a big series is our Chief Strategist, David Llewellyn-Smith. Hello to you, David. Hey, Tim. And also here to share his thoughts on our take uh, on inflation <coughs> risks and how we reflect these in our portfolios. We have our Head of Investments, Damien Classen. Hello to you, Damien. Hi, Tim. And just a quick reminder before we get started, if you haven't already, subscribe and click on the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch and follow us on your preferred podcast platform. We also uh, ask if you take a moment to click like on the video now to help our show grow. And for those listening in live, of course, feel free to drop in your questions in the YouTube live stream chat to have them answered along the way. So we'll jump into our agenda for today. So we're going to kick off with now versus history. We're then going to roll across to commodity prices, the inventory cycle, then those scenarios we're talking about, and then finally uh, wrap it all up with our investment positioning as well. So uh, I'll hand over to who, who'd like to get the show started today. Damien, I think yeah, you were keen. Yeah, I wanted to do a quick recap of um, <clears throat> sort of three Damien, you're breaking up. I think we're getting some tech issues from Damien. Well, I'll take over for yeah, now. Yeah, maybe if you get us started, Dave. So, yeah, I mean, we've had our four uh sorry three rather uh preliminaries to this potty uh and now versus history uh you know in terms of inflation and whether or not uh these days it compared favorably to past episodes of high inflation such as post-war or all the 1980s for instance uh, and our conclusions were that uh, it's very different this time uh, we produced a chart that shows that uh, if you if you look at it 
over a two-year cycle instead of one, then in effect, all you're really doing is getting a lot of deflation in year one and then a lot of catch-up inflation in year two, twice the inflation, as it were, and so it all evens out over a two-year period. Uh, and then there are, you know, the various other, many other structural differences between now and, say, the 1980s where, uh, you know, we have a lot of disenfranchised labour these days, globalisation considerably more advanced despite, despite recent pullbacks, uh, you know, much, much uh, less powerful trade unions, much, much more powerful corporations, in a, uh, which is often referred to as monopsony, um, which, uh, you know, gives, the, gives them pricing power when it comes to wages and, and so you don't get wage push inflation. Uh, and so our conclusion was basically that, you know, this is all supply side, uh, which brought us to our second kind of uh, contention in this large debate, which is uh, that it was uh, more or less driven by an inventory super cycle, uh, which, which is that, uh, you know, we, we've had this huge shock to the global economy, both in terms of uh, a decline in activity, but also a restructuring of activity because, as Tim said earlier, households worldwide were unable to spend on services and anything that was kind of people to people. And so goods demand went through the roof, uh, you know, juiced by stimulus. And then as we've started to come out of that pandemic, we've also had lots of pent-up savings to unleash and uh, more stimulus. And, of course, um, uh, uh, just people getting back to work, etc., and so uh, that goods demand has has continued to boom, uh, and and we've kind of modelled for you how an inventory cycles where you when you get relatively small swings at the end user um, interface, say in retail, for instance, that actually amplifies through the supply chain back to wholesalers and then to factories industry itself it, with a huge uh, multiplication factor. So if you were to drop, to drop demand 10% in one year, it ends up being a 60% blow to production. If you then raise it 10% to, versus your, your, or back to normal even, you're going to get a huge kick to production above normal levels. And if you were to raise it even further above where you were when, before you had the shock, then it's going to be an enormous kick to production coming out of your problems. And so, you know, we're, while we're still in COVID and we've got some, some supply side constraints around uh, transport and commodities and other stuff, and then you've had, the, had this enormous inventory cycle, then, then, you know, inevitably you're going to see some really big price rises over the short term. Um, simply because factories are going, going absolutely like clappers, like they've mm. never seen demand like it. Uh, and so that gives you, you know, a lot of what we're seeing, for instance, in China uh, with its um, producer inflation that was out yesterday at, at, a, at a, you know, extraordinary 9%. But if you look into it, it was really down to a couple of small things like iron ore, oil, a little bit of base metals, a bit of mining. So it was just this enormous industrial um, super cycle that's just come pouring through and and then juiced commodity prices that are inputs into that. And then, then you've had markets overlay that 
and start to extrapolate these prices out forever and then Wall Street's telling everybody to buy commodities to protect against commodity inflation, uh, onwards and upwards. But all of it uh, is a relatively short-term phenomenon and particularly this is the case when you address our third uh, component to this, which was the China problem, uh, which is that you know China consumes anything anywhere between fifty and three quarters of mm. the volumes of global commodities, uh, and because it was into this crisis first and out of it first, uh, with in particular with its stimulus as well as clearing up the virus, um, it's it's now tightening it's into an actually a normalization cycle ahead of everybody else in particular targeting commodity centric areas of its economy because it hates australia for one but it also hates paying you know uh, very high prices for commodities and a awful lot of them come from australia so it's a it's a very annoying circumstance for the chinese authorities uh, yep. and so they've been tightening uh, quite firmly on property in particular in China. They've been going after their property development sector, uh, which so is- Dave, the, when you say going after, you mean- uh, Well- uh, Like well, macroprudential style going uh, after? It's or? actually regulatory in terms of um, the the property sector or the development sector where they've, they've put a whole, yeah, call it macroprudential, I guess, but it's not banks, it's developers. So they've just imposed a whole bunch of leverage limitations on them in effect and so you know these these huge developers used to just go out and borrow trillions of yuan build ghost cities and then flog them off over time with mm. enorm with enormous inventories and now they can only build on forward sales yeah right wow yeah right? Uh, and so what that's forcing immense deleveraging into that segment. And so Chinese floor area starts have fallen heavily already over the first half of this year. Mm -hmm. Now there's a pig in the Python we've described in China where the previous stimulus and catch up growth and whatever has still got very high levels of activity, but it's going to pass and this tightening is going to come to bear over the next six to 12 months. So that pops you to commodities bubble. Then that, flows back down into the supply chain stuff just as the inventory cycle comes off the super cycle just as the economy is reopening goods demand starts to normalize because people can spend on services and so this entire wound up thing that we've got that lots of people extrapolating into eternity is just going to pop mm. yeah and so that's why the fed is you know comfortable that there's no inflation coming most central banks in fact, uh, comfortable that uh, the inflation we're seeing is temporary and uh, basically we agree with them. In fact, you know, I actually think there's a, there's a, a bit of a, an air pocket for growth developing in China. There's possibly one coming in the US as well because a lot of its fiscal stimulus is rolling off. And so I actually think it's plausible that we'll see prices bust over the next 12 months not just come off heavily but actually bust but you know that's that's probably a risk case but it's definitely there um, nonetheless we certainly see um, very serious retracements of a lot of the supply side price rises we've seen and, to date. and, and the danger um, is though that we're we are about to see some really strong um, inflation numbers come out of the US and you're probably still going to get to see another couple of months of, of this in strong inflation numbers and the danger you have is that um, 
uh, central, some central banks fold in the meantime. Is that they start under the under under the pressure of seeing some high um, short term uh, headline inflation numbers? Is they actually go the wrong way and 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 start to tighten or or at least start taking steps towards tightening. So mm. yeah, so that's um, that that's probably one of the major risk cases which we're which we're looking out for. Yeah. Um, okay. So so that kind of wraps up what we've been um, talking about for the last three weeks. Um, and, you know, in the last week or so, markets have really started to sort of roll towards this view as well. We've seen uh, some material falls in, in bond yields. <laughs> Excuse my five-year-old. Just hang on, I'll close my door. Um, and, yes, yeah, so, uh, sorry, do you want to go to no, I was just going to say, um, yeah, yeah, just, just sort of following on, we were sort of chatting before the show, um, you know, you guys have, have come out with this, um, you know, quite involved piece over, you know, the course of the last few weeks and um, it's just interesting to see that the rest of the world is sort of catching up and f following the, you know, getting on board with the same narrative. Uh, well, I wouldn't say that. There's still an awful lot of inflationistas out there, but but the pricing in markets has definitely moved right towards this mm. narrative. Um, I, that's a really interesting phenomenon, actually which I, I find it hard to explain just in terms of, you know, people talking their book or whatever. Like there's a real inflation. There's just a group, I think, of uh, heavy hitting investors that are, are just really inflation paranoid. Yeah. Uh, and they're very loud. They get a lot of headlines. And I guess they're talking their book. Mm. Um, but But they're just... You know, we even forecast this earlier in the year. We thought that this would grasp, sort of take the imagination of certain segments of the market. But I just, I don't know, I've just been a little bit surprised at the um, the ferocity of it in certain, mm, yeah. in certain quarters. Yes, I mean, I mean, we positioned our portfolio for rising inflation, despite the fact we thought it would, it would only be a head fake, but with the view that the market would, as it typically does, it, it takes short-term trends and extends them to infinity. And yeah. so... Um, where rather than sort of saying yes, we we do go through cycles and and so um, yeah. So but but as I said, it's it's surprising how um, yeah, despite the fact we're expecting it, it is surprising how vehement um, many of them are. Mm. And yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. So yeah. So it's I guess that's a bit of a lesson for everybody. Is this is our second pretty serious rotation in six months, mm. uh, and We'll go through our investment scenarios shortly. Um, we probably see this this discussion playing out for the next twelve months, eighteen months, uh, and so we, we, you know, we're not fixed to any view here because we're like once we get through all of these distortions that are caused by COVID, which is what we're really talking about, COVID and its redress, and we get to some sense of normalcy, we are still going to get back to. Uh, you know, relatively low unemployment in the US and in many, many developed markets, and in the US at least, not so much elsewhere, um, we are then going to have a lot of ongoing fiscal stimulus. Mm. Um, so, you know, the next tranches of that are the Biden infrastructure uh, stuff. Uh, and, you know, that's going to get through in kind of September this year. But it because it's not shovel-ready stuff, it takes probably take 12 months for it to really start to flow through. So it'll really be a kind of 2022-23 story. 
Uh, and then you will get stronger US growth in this cycle as a result versus the last uh, and probably some higher inflation as a result, like better wages growth uh, and, and good inflation. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, looking out 12 to 18 months, there's another rotation coming down the pipe here as well. Um, but for the time being, um, we think that there's a, a pretty decent disinflationary shock coming. Uh, and the question is, you know, how does that affect the market? And could it turn? Could it also turn into a growth shock for the market? Yep. Um, so uh, I'll just, I guess, um, go through. We, we, you know, our three scenarios for how. Uh, Actually, just before we jump into that, and we've got a series of questions as well um, that we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, sure. run through. But um, so obviously, we've got a uh, pretty important inflation print coming out of the US overnight our time tomorrow morning as well um just some expectations around that or if there's any commentary from, from you fellas a big number yeah i mean the, the market consensus is for 4.7 i think um up from 4.2 now a chunk of that about 0.3 of that at least is actually just the fact that the, the base got smaller so so as you went from uh april to may last year it inflation actually fell and so even if prices went nowhere you'd expect prices to be 4.5 so um you know 4.7 i think it's reasonable uh, you know i guess what i'd say is it's could be somewhere between 4.4 4.5 and 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 low fives uh, you know i wouldn't be surprised with, mm-hmm. with any of that but I, but and i think that's where we're saying you know it's, it's certainly not impossible that you could see a number with a five on it um depending upon what you know some of those weird smaller categories do um oh, I've, seen, that I've, happens, seen, I've seen much higher modeling than that too Mm. Yeah, I won't so be surprised that happens, if, it's a, if it's a big number. Yeah, and that yeah. that 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 could cause sort of the peak this peak concern. After that, um, the the base numbers start to rise, so you sort of year and year effect um, fades away. Uh, a lot of it is going to be down to the where it is though, and we've spoken before. You know, we we dug into you know whether it's the sticky prices or the not sticky prices, whether it's um, you know which segments are are the ones where you're seeing uh, big increases. If it's things like like last time, it was sort of Things like used cars and um, airline tickets and and hotel rooms and and things like that that were actually already de- um, depressed in price. Well, certainly, sorry, hotel rooms and air price tickets were, were, were still below where they were. So pre-pandemic, it was more just a bounce back. Um, those ones we're not as concerned about. If you start seeing some fundamental um, inflation come through, then then um, then yeah. But I mean, a, a good example though as well, just in where how we're seeing this. Um, is we saw the uh, Chinese inflation numbers came out earlier on in the week, and um, you know while the the producer price index, which is the sort of factory gate price, was up you know almost nine percent um, over the year, the uh, consumer was sort of closer to one percent, and I think one point two or something, Dave. Um, uh, and so yeah, three yeah, but 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 low numbers, and and particularly for China, hmm. um, and so you know it's that um, it's that or well, the thought that China is a fair bit further through the process than a lot of other countries. And um, it's uh, just because you're seeing high prices back at the, the producer price doesn't actually always mean that it flows through to the consumer. And actually, in recent years, um, it hasn't flown through to the consumer side. Yep. Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, a couple of questions here. And thanks to uh, our live listening audience. Feel free to stick in a few more if, you, if some come up. Um, one here from TS, how does the seemingly large change in where we finally have the fiscal policy required for growth in the EU, Australia and USA that has been required after a decade 
of austerity change your view? Uh, well, don't the, fear the, don't fight the Fed in, 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 <laughs> so many, in too many words. No, no. Well, I just go back to what I mentioned before that we're you know our current disinflationary shock, if you want to call it that, um, kind of scenario or thesis uh, is is short term. Like, mm. Well, short to medium, like depending on where how you define those. So twelve to eighteen months, um, uh, and then that that fiscal stuff starts to roll out in the US. Um, now, this is a really, really interesting question. I, I don't think the stuff in the EU is all that big mm -hmm. um, or all that relevant uh, in terms of the kind of inflationary stuff that we're seeing today, and neither is it in the US. This is the really interesting part about it. Like, take the US, for instance, you know, of, of a mooted $4 trillion in stimulus over like eight to 10 years, only about $600 billion is hard assets. Right. So... Um, if you break that down to, say, the impact on steel, it ends up being like 6 to 10 million tonnes a year. Now, that's just so small that it's, yeah. that, that it's kooky. Point, point, point 0.3 to point 0.5 of world demand. Yeah. So, <laughs> Whereas yeah. If, if China succeeds in, in slowing its property sector um, or infrastructure, it's, in, its infrastructure alone is 10 times that. Mm. Right. Uh, if it succeeds in slowing, uh, in slowing either infrastructure or property or both, uh, then the, those uh, they're just irrelevant to, com mm. to commodities. So the really interesting thing about this is, uh, we think that China's basically running out of rope for urbanisation. Okay. Um, so it it is it is being forced to slow its construction sectors structurally, and um this will be an ongoing process. It won't be all happen at once. It will likely happen the way it has before. There'll be like, put the brakes on, then hit the accelerator again, et cetera, et cetera, as they're managing interest and growth and stuff. It's not all just at once, but it is an ongoing need. And so it means that China's growth is gonna to continue to slow over the coming cycle. Like by the time they get to 2030, urbanization's done. Hmm. They've only got 10 years of it left. It gets them to around 80% urbanised population, and that, that's just typical of a developed economy. Not many get higher. Mm -hmm. Some do, but not many. Um, and, a, and a continental economy like China is unlikely to go much higher, I would think. Now, there are other things they could do. They could keep knocking down buildings and rebuilding them and stuff, you know, Soviet style, and no doubt there'll be a lot of that too. But they are aware that this is going to slowly but surely strangle their economy if they don't deal with it. So, on the and, and the whole lockdown, lockdown and rebuild process at the moment, you're knocking down a hut in a in a rural area <coughs> that doesn't have any steel in it. But once you do start having to knock down buildings that already have the steel, um, all that will be recycled and put back into the new building. Quite right. Mm. So back to your question, you know, you've got um, uh, fiscal spending that's going to give you a lift especially in the US, a little bit in Europe. Europe's still going to be a very externally driven economy. It's not enough there, but it's bigger in the US. And so the US is going to be kind of the growth locomotive of the cycle, uh, while China is the caboose. This is kind mm. of the, the metaphor we've been using of late. And as China slows and the US accelerates. So that's not a very good scenario for commodities even though you've got lots more fiscal stimulus because it, you, you've basically got US inflation 
growth and interest rate leadership in that scenario. And that's a rising US dollar. And you've got slowing Chinese growth and commodity consumption that's much, much, much like magnitudes larger than what's happening in the US. Uh, and so you've got fall, you've got rising US dollar, which is really negative for commodities in financial financialization terms and falling demand for commodities coming out of China. So, so the upshot of that in terms of inflation is it's, it's nice and inflationary reason, a little bit inflationary for the US and it's really deflationary for everybody else. Yep. And, and so it gives you this really interesting kind of uh, challenge for, for all macro managers as we go further into the cycle. Um, so that's my long-winded answer. Mm. I've got one other thing to add to that is there's this whole part about you know, monetary policy versus fiscal policy. And for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, we've been saying we're going to fight, um, you know, we're going to try and increase it, get our inflation up by using, um, by using monetary policy. We've got our fiscal policy sort of um, tied behind our back in terms of saying, no, no, we're going to, we're going to reduce, you know, we're either in Australia running down the deficit or, or um, you know, in the EU, you're not running deficits greater than X percent. And in, in the US, depending upon whether you've got a Republican president or a Democratic president, you, you, you've got a Democratic president, you tend to have um, all of a sudden a whole bunch of people worried about the debt. Um, and so it's this thing we've been saying, let's try and get inflation higher, but we're, fight, we're going to fight it with one hand tied by the back. And now we've come and said, okay, now we're going to use both arms uh, for a little bit. Like we'll, we'll have a few jabs and then, but the question is, will, will that will that hand go back behind the back again as as you start to come out of this? Do you start to see like already we've had we've had one high month of of inflation, and we've we've spoken about the the amount of um, inflation hysteria that's out there about you know this is it we've had one high month it's gonna it's all over you know pack it up you know it's it's hyperinflation's the next step yeah. and it's saying well um, is is that going to die down or are people going to ignore that or or is or are politicians going to um, going to keep up with the fiscal spending. Now, at the moment, it does look like they're going to keep up with the fiscal spending, particularly in the US, but um, it's, a, you know, it's an open question. And, and um, you know, until, until we actually do see um, you know, a number of months of inflation and, and see what pressure builds on, on these politicians, we, it's quite likely they, they will just go back to saying, okay, well, let's just keep going, to, go back to trying to fight it with, with one arm again. Mm, okay. Yeah, very good. Um, Another question that's come in. Thank you, Alec. And this might be a nice segue into our uh, next next slide. Um, if uh, here we go. If you if you if you positioned for transitory inflation, uh, what were your sell signals on these positions? Bonds, central bank messaging. Mm. Uh, a couple of things. Well, so yeah. got, sorry. Well, there's a whole bunch of them. There's heaps of them. Yep. Um, but I mean, my key ones were, were um... <laughs> sorry. And your kids came in. I think uh, a lot of the investment universe is very US centric. Yep. Uh, and thinks that the Fed, and this is probably just a legacy of monetarism that everyone's been taught for the last 30 years, that the Fed is the be all and end all of inflation. Uh, and yet, if you look at the the reality of it, um, it's really Chinese demand for for commodities that is the be all and end all of inflation for the last several cycles. We've never managed to get any decent wage inflation anywhere 
to get a wage push inflation cycle going. Um, and most of the inflation that we've had, pulses that we've had coming out of shocks and going into them have simply been commodity based. And so what China does with credit is more important than what the Fed does. So my key signals have been watching what China's doing in terms of credit. Uh, and and that's, you know, their, their, their credit impulses rolled over, you know, six or eight months ago. It's really been plunging for the last five. Mm. Uh, and, and if you chart that against really basic indices like the CRB or any kind of, you know, commodity index, the correlation's there to see. Yeah. It's mm. very, very simple. Before you even get to things like iron ore that are much more, you know, precisely kind of correlated where, you know, the, the levels of consumption in China are just off the chart. Um, and so China's been the key for me. Okay. Yep. Damien? Yeah. Mm. yeah, look, I'd echo that one, but I think as well, pricing's obviously important to us, um, is that the bond, you know, watching what the bond market's doing, if the bond market had it backed up even further, um, we, we would have been, um, you know, overweight bonds and, and picking up more long-term bonds. Um We'd sort of, I guess, I call it hiding it. We'd hidden at the, the, the short end of the curve, mm-hmm. uh, and now we're starting to normalise our positions in terms of saying, okay, well, let's let's go back to a more normal bond condition because because we have seen bond yields rise and and actually in the last week um, they've started to, to go back the other way. And so mm-hmm. um, so yeah, the bond markets really haven't priced in as what as much as equity markets has. The bond yeah, markets yeah. are sort of they've they've really treated it as yeah, look, this inflation is there, there's a bit of inflation, but it looks like it's going to go away. Mm-hmm. And and certainly when you look, you dig into some of the pricing of things like um, uh, you can you can sort of get a read in terms of what what investment markets are actually pricing inflation at, and um, very much they're pricing in yes there'll be short term inflation, but the long term inflation is actually outlook is actually pretty low. Mm. Um, the the equity markets so seeing where the equity market rotations are happening um, that's the other, that's another thing. So yeah, for us it's saying well if we're expecting this inflation scare and we see the market start to take too extreme of a position saying, yes, inflation is coming, then that's a good sign for us to then be able to flip, you know, sell at the higher prices and be able to flip back into the, the lower prices of, of, of stocks where we don't think, um, uh, you know, we think they'll benefit from the disinflation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so pricing is, um, there's a fundamental side to it, which is where do we see the fundamentals? But then the second part is where do we see the mispricing? Because, um, you know, like the bonds, so for us, you fundamentally, we, we should be longer term bonds, but but actually they're not really that mispriced. And if anything, they're sort of maybe a little bit conservatively priced at the moment. So um, yeah, so that's an asset that fundamentally we'd like to be buying, but but we're not because the price is um, yeah not an appropriate level. Okay, all right, very good. Um, all right, so let's uh, jump across to our investment scenarios, gentlemen. So we've sort of got three rough paths in front of us. We'll go through them one by one. Uh, good news is good news. Bad news is good news. Good news is bad news. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so good news is good news uh, is inflation falls. Uh, well, let's, let's sort of start at the beginning and say the supply side uh, frictions start to ease and so some of the cap on on um, production that's developed in recent times lifts and, and output can lift, but at the same time, um, commodities come off in prices, China slows, and 
And so you get a margin lift for corporations, for businesses. Mm -hmm. right? um, and so this is good for profits. Sorry. And, and assuming wages stay low as well. So, yeah, I mean, scenario. like there, there's similar, there are similar dynamics playing out in some labor markets, like in terms of, I don't know if you'd call it an inventory cycle exactly, but I mean, there are supply side frictions in the US labor market. I think it's fair to say at the moment as well. And they'll ease as well. So we're going to see some some wage inflation initially, I think, that's going to ease as people become more comfortable going back to work. The vaccine's more effective. All the unemployment, special unemployment stuff rolls off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so yes, uh, we expect wages to be to be fine for the time being. Um, so, so that that's uh, you know just a, a basic good news is good news is story. If if that's the case, then you can sort of be relatively sanguine about um, equities. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, and you know you're kind of looking at a kind of mid cycle rotation to to quality. Mm -hmm. Um, pretty pretty typical of a normal cycle. Everything's very overvalued, so there might be a correction, but it's not too dramatic. Um, and and you you wouldn't see enormous falls in bond yields, um, but definitely some. So um, so that's your first scenario. Second one's bad news. Well, actually, let me, jump, let's talk about a bit more as well about that one about because this yep. is one which I think we're we're thinking of as 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 a pretty likely scenario. Mm. So. Um, you know, the types of assets we want to own in that that type of scenario is um, we're sort of looking more as a bit of a little bit of a barbell type uh, strategy in terms of that is is um, some defensives and defensives you're sort of talking about um, you know utilities uh, REITs telcos type type stocks that are that have got this inflation sorry got this uh, interest rate um, comparability in mm. that usually what happens is interest rates falls uh, they do quite well yep uh, within the REIT sector in particular that's one where um, so real estate investment trusts is, you know, there are still some concerns around vacancy rates and, and um, the, you know, what does the office actually look like going forward? So, so as an example, within our own portfolios, we actually don't have very many of the, the sort of traditional office REITs or, um, or things like that. We've sort of gone for more um, esoteric ones. So we've got a, a, um, some storage REITs. So sort of with the idea that people have bought all these goods during the pandemic and they're going to need to put them somewhere. <laughs> uh, there's a... Uh, uh, there's actually the world's largest REIT is, is American Tower Corporation, um, which uh, effectively owns towers and leases out um, uh, the the communications to to telcos. Effectively sells sells to telcos the uh, the spots on that tower, and and um, yeah, that's that's quite a quite a good growth area for, with 5G and everything like that. Sort of with the rollout, and so there's there's ways like that where we're trying to find um, sectors that that aren't as exposed to that um, properties property market. Um, but but still get that same sort of defensive exposure. So that's sort of one end of your barbell. At the other end, um, yeah, some people have chased the, the really high growth sort of junk growth, junk qualities, the ones where you're loss making stocks where your idea is it's going to the moon and that, yep. they'll probably do all right under that under this scenario. But we tend to prefer to go for some more of the quality end of the growth um, where um, you get sort of stocks like your um, uh, your Facebooks and your Googles and your Microsofts and and apples and, and stocks like that, where you're getting decent growth and or quite good growth out of them, but um, uh, there's a much higher quality because they're actually earning um, good profitability at the same time. There, there is a risk as well when you're going going into the sort of uh, crappy growth area of the market. The one that 
basically blew an extraordinary bubble last year. Um, uh, that bubble's only half deflated. And so it's possible as well that if you get a good news is good news scenario play out, then the market could start to look through uh, to, to, you know, possible inflation in 2023 or whatever. And they may not, the markets simply may not bid back into that bubble. It may continue to, def to deflate because some of the valuations are still pretty wild there, even though we have had a pretty epic bust. So we're, we're not interested in going, um, you know, in being Kathy Wood, the, of this world and going chasing chasing the, the more uh, speculative end of the market. That said, that kind of segues into our next scenario, which is bad news is good news. And that is, you know, if if this unraveling we see on the, the supplies in supply side prices, not necessarily, uh, you know, output, um, if that really does bust, as I suggested earlier, it might, uh, then, uh, and we get a real, you know, kind of if bonds really, bond yields really get beaten up because you know, what what we could see is just take iron ore as, as an example. Let's say it falls by half over 12 months. And so your 9% PPI this year in China will become minus 6% next year hmm. you'll you'll reverse all of the base effects that are panicking everyone right now and they'll all be panicking about it panicking by about in deflation instead uh, and in that scenario then you really do want to be own more bonds be much further out the curve and we could actually see another like wild um, rotation back into all of that growth schlock that did so well last year hmm. um, uh, you know, the speculative EV stuff, the non-profitable tech, um, um, SPACs, Bitcoin, you know, that, that whole kind of crazed somewhat uh, if we get that bad news is good news scenario play out. Um, and, uh, and it's worth Dana, noting you want to add, add those ones? Yeah, the thing I wanted to add on those ones is is both these scenarios, as we've said, some of that some of that low quality tech, you know, your Teslas and, and and stuff like that, could could perform quite well. It's worth noting, though, um, you know, it's it's your uh, everything's got a risk and a return, and so we're talking about different scenarios. And, and in some cases, you're saying, well, okay, here's here's a stock where if this happens and this happens, it could be up ten percent. And then you look at a different scenario and go, well, if if something slightly different happens, this could be up thirty percent. Hmm. But um, on, on the third scenario, when you go, well, yeah, okay, but if, if things go wrong, this thing could be down 90%. It's like all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, you know, yes, there's a little bit of upside in a couple of scenarios, but this is massive downside. And even if you don't take the, um, you know, even if you even if you get it wrong and, and you sort of said, I'm not going to invest in this stock and it does go up 30%, it might not have been a wrong decision if if, if things were quite uncertain. And, and you're saying, well, you know, your downside was you're going to lose a lot. Sort of a bit like, you know, you, you turn up to the casino and you say, you know, I'm going to bet on red or black. And on a red, I'm going to double double my money, and on black, I'm going to lose my house. It's like, well, okay, well, my money. If I'm putting down a hundred bucks, and I'm, you know, I might I might earn two hundred, or the downside is I lose my house. You're like, well, okay, not playing is 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 often a good is often a good a good strategy. Yep. And and even if it comes up and you go, well, I, I would have actually doubled my money. He's going, yes, but you know, I avoided the chance to lose my house. Mm. So you know, with with some of these, um, the high growth area. Um, it's what I think Dave's been trading a you know possibly a, a tradable rally 
if you're in and out quickly, but but it is um it, it's a high risk area to be playing in, especially now as that bubble is already deflating. Yeah, yeah, it would be a bear market rally basically. Hmm. Um, so so then there's our third scenario, and this is the good news is bad news uh, uh, model, which uh, basically uh, transpires if. Uh, as well as price falls, we actually see a bit of a growth shock. Um, now that's possible because for two main reasons, we're, we're, we're about to see Europe reopen, you know, uh, aggressively, and that's going to be terrific support for this, for the global economy and to, to ensure that as China and the U S come off, that there's more growth in the, in the global economy and, and, and in this inventory cycle. But um, China is going to come off. And how the, the timing of how those two things, tra- things transpire is not entirely clear. China's definitely going to come off, I think, starting in the second half of this year and more in 2022. Um, and I think a lot of it being very commodity-centric uh, means that it can flow th- flow on. You can get contagion effects from that into things like emerging markets. Like if we really get a big commodity route um, and emerging markets get drawn into that, then, you know, you start to see things like junk bond spreads blow out and then you start to get a rising US dollar. Uh, and, and then those dynamics can feed on themselves for a little while and the whole world kind of suddenly thinks, well, we're into a China growth shock. Now, um, the second reason I think that that is not not implausible is because the US is always also going to slow a lot by the end of this year. Its mm. reopening is going terrific. Its labour market will continue to rebound. All of those things are true, but it it poured so much fiscal stimulus into the dark days of the pandemic, quite rightly. Uh, that it's simple. It's a simple mathematical issue where they're going to be, you know, they. You're going to be pulling out like seven trillion dollars of stimulus year over year, and so you'll get lots of private sector reopening, and that's going to be great for for activity. But there's a huge headwind here of public spending that's just going mm. to get sucked out of the economy, and so it's going to go from ten percent growth in Q2 to nobody really knows what it'll be by Q4. I've seen anything from zero to four or five. Wow. Now, and it's temporary, right? Mm. Because it's just the fact that when these $2 trillion hits of stimulus come out in a quarter, at 12 months on, they're not there, right? And so that's that's just a massive rate of change in your public spending that directly comes off your GDP and that that makes corporate profits difficult. Mm. Um, so, So if you get, uh, and I'm not saying that this is going to happen, I'm saying it's plausible, you could get that combining with the China slowdown and fighting against the European reopening in a way where there's actually a mini growth shock coming as, as the whole supply side starts to unwind this cold spring. Uh, and in that case, you could very easily see a reasonably decent correction in equities. Right, and and also the other thing we we spoke about was the um yeah the, the traditional inventory cycle where you see that um very much come through that you get a um 
at the manufacturer, sort of you have to have a look at the one from last week or, or, or have a look through the, the, the version online. But basically the manufacturer goes from, say, producing uh, you know, 90 units per, per month to, to almost doubling their, their, their production for, for a month. But then it actually fall, might fall back to 110. So um, you know, you're still well above where you started from, but you've been through this big jump first. And so it's just a slowdown from, you know, jumps from say 90 to 150 and then back down to 110. Your 110 is still better than the 90 it was running at, but mm. you've had this this massive growth sort of um, bring forward where, where people have had to do the restocking. And so that's the, that's what David's talking part of part of what David's talking about as well is this is a you can see um, it's not a base case but you can certainly see where a number of these things could just all line up together all coming through at the same time and just turning into this growth shock and and at the same time um, you know if, if the inventory cycle has lasted another couple of months longer than what we think you might find a few more central banks starting to tighten and it's just like you just it goes from being um, hey, isn't everything wonderful? To suddenly um, everything's looking quite bad, and as if and as if and if there's as if there's been a policy error, all within a short couple of months. Mm. And so, um, yeah, as, as you're saying, not a base case, but certainly um, a uh, on the cards for as a possibility. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying even if this happened, it's it's not a scenario in which you get like a massive crash in the stock market. Uh, it's a scenario in which the stock market simply has to remind authorities that they that that, that it's very highly valued and hanging on policy stimulus. Yep. Yeah. Right. And so it's just just one of those cases where you got to fall ten or fifteen percent until the Fed promises something something new, and perhaps yeah. China as well. Yeah. That's you know. just, uh, markets just want want central banks to say tell them that they love them again. Yes. Yeah. To remind me that you love me, and then they can say, oh, "Okay, that's right." I can, and and so yeah, so the, and and that's that whole. We we spoke about markets at the moment extrapolating things to infinities, which is what they tend to do on on both the upside and the downside. Is that when when things are good, things are always going to be good, mm, and then when things right. are bad, things are always going to be bad. And so um, yeah, so what we're saying is that we've we've got this good section right now that markets are are, are thinking are, are going to be good forever. Whereas we're saying no, there's a, there's a bit of a growth hole, but the same to by the same token, when the growth hole happens, that's a buying opportunity mm. because they'll when when the markets are saying, oh, this is going to you know growth's over, you know yeah. we're all headed to be um, you'll never look see at, growth again. If, look, if that happened, it'd be a fantastic buying opportunity because mm. you're then going into next year's ramp up of Biden stimulus and and terrific U.S. growth. Um, mm. So. So yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I hope it happens, but but, but it would be a great buying opportunity if it did. So, um, so if you're into that scenario, you 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 would want to be thinking about the same things that we've already described in terms of factor rotations for your equities, where you're looking in terms of what Damo described, but you'd want to be holding less of them mm. as well, uh, and more longer bonds, longer duration bonds. So, but right. that's that said, as I say, I don't think this is um, any sort of uh, large end of cycle event or anything. It's just pretty typical mid-cycle correction that, uh, you know, is a, is a good chance to rotate or, yeah. you know, get longer for what looks like once we get through all these distortions will actually be a very good cycle for the US and a more troubled cycle outside the US. Hmm. Okay. Very good. Um, just a quick one, I guess, on uh, just looking locally. 
I know we've been sort of speaking in a very sort of global piece, but um, is there sort of any any point of difference, do you think, with the Australian economy over everything else, or are we all sort of falling into lockstep larger off the back of the, the China thematic? Uh, look, it's 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 it depends what you look at. Like, you know, this week we had the NAB business survey come out in Australia, and it was just the wildest survey I've ever seen. I reckon. In what way? It was so overheated. Uh, that it, it it looked like the RBA should hike rates by 100 basis points next <laughs> next month, right? But uh, so many of these indices are being distorted by COVID and a lot of these effects that we're talking about, base effects. PMIs are terrible in this environment. I think that's what's impacted the, the NAB survey as well a little bit with its year-on-year um, comparisons. That's why inflation looks so high. You know, we've described this at nauseam. Um, and but if you read some of the indicators in the Australian economy, you'd, you'd, you know, they're absolutely eye popping at the moment. I think I don't think there's any doubt that right now we've got a, a solid, good recovery going with good mm-hmm. momentum. You know, like house prices are mad. Mm. The government, the government's triggered uh, a lot of brought, bring forward in capex through its tax incentives that we, you know, really interesting. We don't think they'll be needed because we're going to be in oversupply again shortly. But for the time being, you know, capacity utilisation is really high. Um, And, uh, yeah, it's going gangbusters. We've got iron ore, like, you know, high terms of trade, heaps of income growth. It's all great. Closed borders, possible wage rises, et cetera. But, uh, you know, once you, at a certain point, in the not too distant future, they're going to have to tighten on house prices, um, just just for financial stability reasons. Uh, maybe a year away, and then you've got all of this China action coming down the pipe, which um, you know is going to do a lot of damage to terms of trade. Will really hit national income, uh, hurt nominal growth, hurt the budget. You know how will the government respond to that when when you know deficits that. Uh, it's it's blithely forecasting for the time being are all improving because of iron ore, but when it goes the other way and they start deteriorating badly, you know, will they go to more, go back to more austerity? Uh, you know, like there, were, there are a lot, lot more challenges coming uh, down the pipe for Australia. And then, of course, the unknowns like um, the vaccine, uh, getting our borders back open and then... Mm. Are they are they going to drop another immigration bomb on us for the next ten years mm. and and wipe out wages wages growth again? I mean, a lot of unknowns. Still, that, that seems um, fairly far off given the low levels of vaccination in the country. So, ah, uh, yeah, well, it's probably a good twelve months away, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like as well, David. You were uh, if you were giving advice to to our, our current PM, you might be you might be suggesting an early election earlier election rather than the later election be beneficial for him uh yeah I think, economically look pro- probably because i mean mm-hmm. things are going pretty well now mm-hmm. um and you know the further out you get the closer you are to tightening on housing and iron ore falling and iron ore falling yep and mm-hmm. so so probably probably um but these polls aren't great so i'll have to wait and see We've got a um, another question here from TS. Um, so you give 
little weight to the argument that the ESG crowd are going to limit future capex expansion exploration on energy, so that's oil, coal, etc., uh, while demand still increases in China, India, and Southeast Asia. Uh, and he's just used an example, or he or she is used an example that for every gigawatt of coal turned off in the EU and the US, it's replaced by three gigawatts of coal energy in Southeast Asia. So, um, is there sort of anything? anything? Um, There's a little bit of this already in US oil with the Biden administration in power, um, crimping shale a little bit. So I don't completely discount it. And one of the more, one of the more interesting and and complicating factors on my commodities bus thesis is oil. Um, You know, I mean, at the moment, it's just a thoroughly manipulated market. Um, and but effectively so for the time mm-hmm. being. OBEC's still got over 6 million barrels off market. Um, Shale's got about two off market from previous highs. Um, the, uh, the, the EIA's forecasting and maybe 30% of that comes back over the next 12 months. Uh, OPEC will drip it in as needs be. Then you've got Iran with another two. I mean, there, there's oil everywhere um, to come back into the market. And I think that's a couple of years worth until you really see any ECG effects. Uh, but I could see if OPEC, you know, plays uh, plays it tough, you know, we might get oil up a bit higher. Yep. Um, uh, in terms of coal, uh, yeah, oh, gee, I mean, that's that's a tough one. Off the, off the top, I, I, off the top of my head. Uh, sorry, go on, Damo. I was going to say, one of the big differences with coal is uh, coal mines tend not to see steep um, declines every year. Mm. So so oil, um, particularly shale oil, has steep declines every year, but even oil, normal oil wells do decline every year. So so if you're sitting with just today's production, it, it's going to be lower um, tomorrow. And mm. so you need all those. And so you do need that renewed investment. Coal is a bit different in that um, the production tends to be quite steady and, and, and if anything, increasing from, from individual mines until one day it suddenly stops. So um, yeah, it's not not quite the same. Um, yeah, not quite the same yeah. effects. All right. I'd, I'd just simply say in response. Remember, we're talking about a scenario for the next twelve to eighteen months, and so yep. if you're talking ESG, you're talking long term hmm. impacts. So like the, well, we've, got bit, we've got a bit of a horizon mismatch on that question. Yeah, and I, I think as well, you know, it's that part for say coal is about saying well. If you're trying to invest in coal because you think that ESG guys are going to stop new coal mines and there's going to be a demand still, and so you've got this short-term window where you'll be able to make these super prices, is is you know if, if that's what you're you're basing it on, then then there's a chance you'll you'll be right. But um, if you, you want to be pretty careful in your model though as well, you're not sort of sitting there going, yes, I've got a mine with a you know I've got a 70-year mine life here and I'm going to make super profits for the first three years, and then you know you're not factoring in that the, the you might not even last 70 years. You might only last 20 or, or, or 10 years in that mine before you're not making any. And and that whole part, um, you know, we've, we've got our solar power and our um, sort of charts up there that we show, but it's, it's very clear that, um, you know, solar plus battery really puts a lid on in terms of prices. Hmm. And so um, where the your prices just don't go higher than that solar plus batteries. And so um, you know, the days of seeing coal prices you know, increase significantly from here. I think are you know it's it's going to be very limited short term supply demand imbalances. It's not going to be any. Um, there's no sort of long term thesis in it. 
you should be certainly factoring in lower um, coal prices, you know, year after year. Yep. Okay. Very good. Um, just in the interest of time, we've got I've got one last question here from Tom. Um, quite a long one. I'll just bear with me. So, um, uh, so thanks, Tom. Can you please explain why we can't have government-induced inflation with relentless government spending and subsidies, with the zero rate hikes? Uh, and with the RBA stating it will bust asset bubbles. Um, that is my base case that the RBA will never raise rates whilst government spending and regional wars will create inflation that is never fought with rate hikes. Can you please explain how this won't happen? Uh, okay, so... Well, wait. The, the real question is, will governments keep on spending? I think in the end. So, so when you say, could 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 I see a scenario where governments keep spending and you just don't see rate hikes of any of any significant magnitude? So basically, you're looking at Japan. Basically, saying, mm. could could we see could could you see a whole bunch of countries turning to Japan? Absolutely. Um, I can have, absolutely see that as a scenario. Um, now, though, it's a matter of saying. Um, Will you get enough impetus behind sort of MMT or sort of real big spending type pushes that actually say we're going to, we're actually going to get enough money out there to to create inflation and and push even harder so that push hard enough so you do get inflation and then you can have rate rises or the flip side is will you also or or could you possibly have governments after you know a year or two of spending lots of money um, to decide okay we've done enough now now it's time for the you know now it's time for the central bank to sort everything else out. We'll, we'll go back to austerity or, or, or try to balance budgets and, and things like that. And so of the three scenarios, um, look, I do think that the Japan version, I guess that he's sort of saying is, is the middle version, which is governments spend enough money, but not enough to generate any meaningful inflation. And so central banks sort of stay on hold or not doing much. I think that's, that's a pretty good base case, but um, you have to acknowledge that, you know, that the, the upside and the downside is, is definitely there as well. And, um, you know, trying to work out which one's going to happen, I think, will is only something we're going to know as as it evolves over time. So, sort of social science, not a there's no there's no, nothing in sticking to into a model and spit out the answer at the other end. It really comes down to a political um, decision about will um, budgets will uh, you know, governments running big budgets will that be accepted or not? Mm. Well, that's yeah, I think, and that's sort of part of it, isn't it? It's saying that. With the government's raised or heightened rate of spending, the the RBA's hands are tied because at some point that'll come, you know, potentially come back down again, and they'll they'll be stuck with the um, with the the or they could be accused then of perhaps blowing up the economy as opposed to the fact that the government's not spending. So anyway, very good. All right, guys. Well, we'll uh, thanks for a great show, a nice capstone to a terrific uh, piece. We've got an exciting uh, bit of information coming through in the. US print tomorrow as well. So stay tuned for that. There might be an article dissecting that one as well, perhaps coming through on the channels, Damien. Maybe in a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll certainly have a look Thanks, at um, yeah, certainly have a look at those and uh depends depend on how how different it is whether we talk about it next week, but uh it'll sure. be uh, actually no we've got a guest on next week, haven't we? Um but it'll be uh I think we'll certainly be um, certainly be writing something on it. Um, just to sort of reflect where it, where it sits, and and because because the real thing for these as well is getting away from that headline number. We know the headline number is going to be big, but but if it's sort of supported by say used car growth again or, or something like that, it's a, it's it's a much less concern than if there's a, a a solid across the board sort of rise in a whole bunch of um sort of more sticky variables.
Yep. Okay. Very good. Oh, well, thanks again, gents. And uh, we've obviously got the the capstone uh, article out for anybody who wants to have a read of that, and we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. Uh, the final piece in the big inflation series of the the last few weeks. So thanks again. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, fellas. Uh, we'll just roll into a couple of quick slides as well. So we just thought um, we'd offer up uh, an ability to have a look at a portfolio and obviously uh, see how we have been putting these uh, these themes into practice, essentially uh, in in personal portfolios and. Uh, if you'd like, there's, you always can head to nucleuswealth.com, uh, go to the Get Started link, which just gets you into our obligation-free uh, portal to have a look at uh, the, the portfolios. And obviously, we can provide advice and, and give a snapshot of uh, what a, a, an investment could look like for you. Um, one of the big things with what we do, of course, is transparency. And you can always see exactly what you own throughout the, um, throughout the time of investing with us. And, and there's, uh, there's a huge amount of transparency and also tailoring in there as well, uh, incorporating the themes like we've uh, like we've spoken about today. Um, our our guest, our viewer, sorry, viewer question for the week to, uh, this week is: uh, What steps are you taking with your portfolio uh, to prevent or, or limit perhaps uh, a potentially a bubble in inflation? And um, always interested to read those and uh, and check those out and reflect on those from our our viewers as well. Uh, and uh, of course, yeah, you can always uh, jump onto uh, our our website and our. Sorry, bear with me. I'm, just, I'm a bit stuck here. We go. I've got <laughs> the slide. There we go. Um, but yeah, always looking always looking forward to those comments. And uh, as always, of course, thanks again to uh, those who've look, uh, watched in live for another great episode, and uh, to all of those that asked some terrific questions again today. Some quite quite involved questions. I hope you've taken away some great ideas, and if you haven't already feel free to click like on the video to give us some feedback. Uh, if you'd like to see more of our content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content to start to date on news from us, follow us on social media. And finally, if you know anyone who'd get something out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. So that's it uh, again. So thanks, thanks for tuning in from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we look forward to catching you at the next one. Cheers.